In a world where points depend on hinges, there are hinge points inside us all. History on a segue. It's overdetermined. We are the points that our hinges have been seeking. What this podcast asks is what if? Agriculture, fail or epic win? What if it was Johnny Bango Pit? What if the Ottomans had AK 47s? Maybe climate change was a good idea. What if the Ottomans had lights? What if the buffalo killed the What if Santa Claus was real, like an actual guy who gave presents every year? This is Hinge Points. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Hinge Points. I'm Danny Bessner, normally of American Prestige, but I am here with my buddy Matt Chrisman to go through the big hinge points in history, to uh, seek through, think through alternative histories of what might have been. And today might be one of the bigger ones that we've done. Uh, we, we did Doggerland for our first episode this season, which is a pretty big one, but this one might be even bigger. It's a little more recent, but it's equally massive in its potential implications. And that if, what if the colonial encounter between European peoples and native peoples in the Western Hemisphere went a little bit differently? And today, Matt and I would like to welcome to the podcast, Alexander Avina. Alex is an associate professor of Latin American history at Arizona State University, and he's also the the author of Specters of Revolution, Peasant Guerrillas in the Cold War Mexican Countryside. Uh, Alex, why don't you actually start with just setting the scene about the role that disease played in shaping the colonial encounter when it first happened in the early 16th, or rather the late 15th, early 16th centuries? Yeah, sure, Danny. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Uh I think so the the broader time frame that we're looking at is 1490s up until let's say like 1600 right that's the 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 first long encounter the first long century of the colonial encounter in the Americas and you know depending on region and I, whether it's you're talking about modern day Mexico or the entire region we tend to think about like an 80 to 90% depopulation right of the region due to due to anti due to diseases um, I think there's also a danger to like make this an inevitable thing. I think this some of the historiography has really worked against the idea that it's disease that accomplished this this massive depopulation and death, right? I think it's a combination of of famine, of war, of uh, disunity that that really went into this just horrific uh, loss of life in the Americas as a result of the co- colonial encounter. So starting with uh, you know Christopher Columbus's uh, voyages that that encount that set the scene of colonialism in the Caribbean of the late 14 early 1500s um, to really I think by the time we get to 1600 there is a more or less Spanish and even Portuguese presence throughout most of the Americas the the disease really had a huge impact the most impact when uh, the Spanish were fighting against highly centralized powerful Amerindian civilizations right so the more centralized the more populated, the more hierarchical the indigenous civilization, the better chance that the Spanish had in defeating them, not primarily because of disease, but really because they were able to forge these really important alliances 
with other indigenous groups who did hated the Mexica in Mexico or the Aztecs um, or had a lot of beef with the Incas in South America. Right. So the way that the historiography has gone recently, that's the emphasis has been placed more on that in terms of setting the scene for then what the introduction of, of, of diseases like smallpox, bubonic plague and others will accomplish in, in, in leading these like massive depopulation rates and death of 80 to 90 percent of the region. And so what we're going to think through on this episode is if what if that 85 to 90 percent didn't happen? And we could think through if maybe things stay the same, you know, maybe they still make the same alliances, maybe they don't, or maybe it's a totally different world. So, Matt, why don't you talk about the alternative history world that we're thinking through, which is pretty interesting based on recent research about encounters between the North Atlantic world and the Western Hemisphere well before the age of formal colonialism? So the idea here is instead of American populations encountering European diseases and European colonial ventures at the same time, which is what we got a situation where the colonists were able to exploit this, you know, incredible social dislocation caused by these, this huge shock to the population and to social structures. And they were able to establish beachheads due to that. What if instead earlier, uh, more regular, but still randomized basically encounters between Europeans and Native Americans led to uh, the same eventual catastrophe. That's an inevitability that that the new quote unquote new world will will come in contact with old world disease structures. And the alternative here is if that happens earlier, as a result of you know, more randomized contact, not these state projects, then perhaps by the time uh, Europe turns to the West to begin the process of building the colonial world uh, that they are encountering native societies that were able to recover and restructure themselves in the aftermath of a massive pandemic, much the same way the Europeans were able to do after the black death. And then the encounter occurs on those relatively equal terms. And then the question becomes what would emerge from that kind of encounter. And so, Alex, this leads, it's interesting because based on recent historiography, the disease effects, correct me if I'm wrong, come a little bit later than the initial encounter. That's correct, right? So this sets the stage. Do things proceed relatively similarly at the very beginning? So what do you think? So so Cortez arrives, whatever, and then uh, they, they, they get going, as it were, and there's not this initial wipeout, this initial eradication of this biological, basically genocide of, of the peoples. Are, are things relatively the same? What do you think? I think it's, I, things play out really differently, right? Especially if we think about the Caribbean, because the Caribbean becomes a beachhead, as Matt was kind of alluding to earlier, right? It's the, really, it's like these loser Spaniards who are not like a, an official army, right? Like they're like the second sons. They're like the sons who are unloved in their families and they're not going to get land and all that shit. They're the ones who make up some of these early groups that will reach the Caribbean. If their inability to establish colonialism and colonial rule on the Caribbean, if that doesn't happen because they're unable to militarily or uh, biologically defeat the indigenous peoples, then I think it's game over. Like there's, there's that prevents the, the, the eventual spread to mainland Mexico and eventually into South America as well. If the, the Taino and, the, and the, the, the Taino peoples are able to resist that initial Spanish incursion after the second or third of Columbus's voyages, 
then that really like the, the Mexica are going to be good. And actually the one cool thing that I thought about a possibility <laughs> is that there was a, one of the greatest historians of, of Mexico that was based in the U S Friedrich Katz, like one of his early where he started as a colonialist or he had work on colonial Mexico. And he had this thesis from like the sixties or seventies that talked about the Mexica empire already being riven internally by class conflict. So if there's no Cortez that ever comes because they're not able to take over in the Caribbean, then this idea of a Masewal or a commoner like revolution or revolt from below to bring down the the mighty Mexica empire, like that's that's something pretty cool to think about, I think. So you could get socialism in the quote unquote new world in, in the in the 1500s, basically. So then you have over the course of the development of the 15th century, uh, uh, a Spanish imperialism that effectively fails in the Caribbean because people are able to prevent the establishment of a beachhead, which would then lead to the uh, uh, the invasion and eventual conquest of Mexico. At the same time, you get an internal class revolt. In So is it fair to call the Mexica empire a class society? Like, how does that work? It, it is a class society, right? You do have, I mean, the vast majority of Mexica who live in, in the, the capital of Mexico, Tenochtitlan, like they never lay their eyes on the Tlatuani, the emperor. Like they, no one sees this guy except for the highest nobility and the highest priest, right? Because he's like a mouthpiece for the gods. So there, there's, so there's a definite class structure. And one way that you achieve a little bit of class mobility is, is through warfare, right? For men, at least, right? To achieve mobility, class mobility through your feats in battle. Um, so there is there is a, a stratified hierarchical class structure um, that exists within the, the center of the Mexica Empire. When we talk about the Mexica Empire, it's kind of weird because it's a different type of empire, I guess. But another thing that's important about the Caribbean, too, is that if, you, if you're unable to establish a beachhead and, and indigenous people survive, then you also don't have the introduction of African slaves, right? Because the first thing that they want in the Caribbean is gold. Gold gets exhausted relatively quickly. So the Spaniards start to organize encomiendas, which are the, the control over indigenous uh, labor and tribute. And when they start to die as a result of warfare, famine, and, and also disease, that's when the idea comes in of, okay, well, we're going to bring in African slaves to work on these, these newly formed sugar plantations that had, started, that had already started to be formed on the, off the west coast of Africa and some of the Atlantic islands. So this also will impact Africa, and it would impact Africa in a major way. It would and if you don't have the slave trade, then if we get all Eric Williams on this, that you're not going to have the development of a particular form of industrial capitalism that Britain will later develop um, in large part based on their wealth that they're generating in their plantation in the Caribbean. So, Matt, let's let's go to Europe. What do you think happens? That beachhead is never established. Europe doesn't have the colonial encounter in quite the same way. What happens to British industrial capitalism, Western European capitalism? It's such well, a wild change. Well, you see that like, uh, on the verge of the of the conquest of the Americas, uh, you have this feudal system in crisis in like a terminal secular crisis, uh, uh, and unable to, uh, deal with its mounting, uh, uh, contradictions and the ratcheting up conflict between the States of Europe that, that, uh, encounter encouraged. Uh, and it was the creation of a colonial realm that sort of, stabilize that structure and allowed for the accumulation, the first primitive accumulation in the colonies. And then, and then the circulation within Europe uh, of like a real cash economy, uh, a, 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 a genuine, like a continent wide uh, circulation of currency that uh, then allows for something to grow out of this broken feudal structure, uh, which by the 17th century and the crisis thereof, 
becomes absolutely unmanageable. And you, I, I have to imagine that absent that uh, variable, that much like we would imagine it would occur with the net Native American societies, the class conflict within the states would lead to some sort of conflict within Europe over control of uh, like actual control of the economy. And yeah, perhaps you get sort of uh, instead of capitalism, you get yeah like a primitive socialism uh, dominating both continents because of the lack of that cathartic valve to discharge and then allow for the synthesizing of class conflict. So let's say by the year 1700, you have socialism in contemporary Mexico. Would that also be, Alex, would that also be in Peru with the Incas? Like, what are we talking now? So like, so you get it, you get the class revolution in what is now Mexico City. You get the creation of a socialist utopia. Is that a feudal agricultural society? What are, what are, what are we imagining here? What was Katz imagining when he makes that argument in the 60s? Yeah, he doesn't really, ex- he doesn't really explore the ramifications of his argument. But I think we can get all mariategui on this and think about Inca socialism, right? It's there were two different types of, of empires, right? The, there's a reason why after the Spanish conquered the Inca Empire, there was always this recurring myth of like the Inca will return to liberate us, right? Because that that reflected a, a reciprocal relationship that they had with their subjects. Whereas no one in Mexico ever wanted to make each other come back. Like they were once they were gone, they get the hell out. We don't want. I mean, because they were pretty for a variety of reasons. They were uh, they were they 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 could be pretty brutal, right? So yeah, it would probably be agriculturally based, right? Um, it would be, I'm trying to think how it would be. It was someone like Mariategui who writes about Inca socialism and the possibility of an embryonic socialism already existing within, within Inca society. It would be agricultural, right? It would be the way he saw it almost be like a, like a, a, a radical rare, a grain reform of the type that we see in the 20th century in Latin America, but way more radical where the power is actually invested in these local IUs in Peru or um, I can't remember what they're called in, in Mexica society, but basically these basic social units at the very bottom that will then be free from any sort of hierarchical stratified structure. And they're able to control the, 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 the surplus of their labor. Right. So that's what it could look like, but they're still going to, but at the same time, if there's no Spanish presence, right. Like I also think that these, these empires become even more powerful. Right. So that that novel that I told you about, Danny, that civilizations by Laurent Benet, like who imagines this, he has it in the novel that the Incas go and invade Spain and take over Spain. And they're seen as like benevolent rulers. And then, unfortunately for the French, they get invited. They get invaded by the Mexica and they get wiped out in the most brutal fashion, which is it's a really it's a it's a funny, uh, enjoyable novel. Well, is something like that possible? I mean, because the argument for European capitalism is one of the reasons that you get these technological developments is Europe is like this hyper competitive, small polity space where people are effectively in a technological arms race. So how would, how would technological development proceed in a society where you get a class revolution in, you know, 1540 to overthrow the Mexica and, you know, you, you get this new social unit based agricultural society? How, how would technology work there? And I want to go to Matt in a second because it's interesting. Because you will have these two parallel developments and then in somewhere in our thought experiment, we'll see like when do they encounter and then what happens from there? Uh, in terms of the technology, um, I mean, this gets this would get us into like China, too, and the great divergence debates. But uh, and, and the advantage that like Britain had with coal supplies and all that shit. But 
No, I, the, the technology that the Spanish are using is like technology that they stole from like uh, Jewish cartographers and, and the Muslims that controlled Al-Andalus for like centuries, right? And that's what gives them the navigational skills, the cartographical skills, that the sailing skills, the agricultural skills as well, right? Irrigation and stuff that they will then take over to the Americas. But if the Spanish, particularly the Spanish, if they don't manage to establish a beachhead in colonialism in the Caribbean that then spreads, then it'd be interesting to think about that actually in, 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 in real history, that actually entrenches feudal structure in Spain, right? There's actually early revolts in 1500 Spain of the comuneros that, that are like urban and, and almost quasi-bourgeois. So colonialism for Spain actually entrenches like a lot of these feudalistic structures, which is why the joke in Latin America becomes, you know, we got colonized by a colonized European power, right? Because all the riches that Spain gets will immediately go out of Spain and goes to China and goes to Amsterdam and goes to London. So you have this weird dynamic that the success of Spanish colonialism in the Americas entrenches feudalism in Spain, which then sets them back vis-a-vis other rising uh, European powers like the British and, and, and the Dutch. So, Matt, let's go to Europe. What's happening in Britain? Is Britain doing a, a colonialism of Ireland uh, is, is without having the specie and the capital that is extracted from the quote unquote new world? How are European powers reacting to the constant sturm und drang of conflict, the constant fighting? What are they going to do with these new social pressures? I mean, without without that uh, valve, without that. Uh, orientation of of action, then you can only have war against each, each other, an escalation of the already endemic warfare that characterizes this period. Uh, now, the interesting thing, though, is that the, the technological arms race that was sparked by this this uh, early modern conflict, the gunpowder weapons and, and new technologies of uh, fortification and all this stuff, those were only really viable in the context where uh, the access to a circulatable species has exploded because that was the chief uh, sort of governor of European economic growth in the feudal era was that it was tied to a, a relatively small amount of gold and silver, which was the only thing that could be, you know, cross borders agreed to as a uh, store of value. And they were basically out of gold uh, on the eve of the Black Death. And of course, that bought time once, you know, 60%, 50% of your population dies. But uh, that problem had not really been solved until the dual advancements of a new technologies in mining, making it more efficient uh, to mine in Europe, and the new access to new world supplies of silver and gold. And those, uh, that, that gold formed the blood, basically, in the circulatory system of this new uh, capitalist machinery. So absent that you have an, uh, I think more warfare, but at a lower technological level, uh, which makes me think that if there is some socialism that could emerge out of these cycles of, of escalating violence, uh, yeah, it would have to be one resting on a much lower base of economic complexity. And that uh, in any world that we're describing, we would probably be at a completely different orientation towards technology and the world than the one we have now. One that would be difficult to even conceive of, honestly. And another thing that I think you have if that beachhead is never established, and that's a really useful way to think about it, is that you don't have that escape valve for literal people in Europe. Yeah. You know, like literal people are going west constantly. And and not just any people either. Your most energetic for whatever reason, the people amongst you who have the, the most fire burning within them 
the, the ones who are most effective at uh, accomplishing a task because of their deep well of self-motivation one way or the other they're fleeing debts and and uh, dishonor or they're seeking glory one way or another they are consumed by an idea that would let them take such an incredible risk they're driven either by desperation or mad confidence that you know uh if that was kept in the countries with that were totally stifling socially and allowed for no uh, upward advancement and no political uh, subjectivity then that is going to destroy from within your um, society, but instead you get to increase the resources of your state by putting them to work uh, on other lands against other people. It's, it's, it's perfect. And this is an interesting question and I'll, I'll throw it back to Alex now. So I th- I don't think you get the British investments in colonialism if the Spanish don't establish the beachhead, because I think that does prove, uh, does provide a proof of concept to, you know, like Elizabeth and people along those lines. But does that mean that the British never engage in the colonial encounter? Because I think that the history of the Americas, you know, Central and South America is different than the British history and what becomes British North America. So do the British establish a beachhead now in North America without the Spanish in the South, or how do you think that would proceed? Yeah, that's a good one. I mean, I think, you know, one of the reasons why the Spanish even attack England, right, to the end of the 1500s is because they're, was part of the counter-reformation, right? And they're emboldened by the wealth and the riches that they're coming out with. So absent that, yeah, it'd be interesting to see what step forward British colonialism would have taken beyond Ireland, right? Because they've been in Ireland for, by the 1500s, they've been there for a couple centuries. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's a really interesting question. Because it is, as you're saying, Danny, it's the allure of like the Spanish finding like a literal mountain of silver in Potosí that's like really alluring to other European empires. That the wealth that they extract from Potosí in in South America, and then these different silver mines that they discover in Mexico, and, and the wealth that they're extracting from sugar plantations that that's alluring for these other rival European empires who will then go into the Americas and start to nitpick at the edges or the fringes of what the Spanish say. This is our land. So there's a reason why the British will start to try to, you know, take away, pick away at the edges of, of Spanish of Spanish empires because they're seeing the wealth that these people, these Spaniards, have managed to extract from the Americas. But they, because in the late 1500s and early 1600s, the balance of power is still mostly on the Spanish. They're going at the fringes. They're going at, at Caribbean islands that are not inhabited. They're claimed by Spain, but they're not inhabited by by Spanish. They haven't been set up as colonial outposts. Um, and, and that's one of the reasons why you, you, you get them in North America, even though there's going to be a lot of conflict for the next two, 300 years in these borderland regions that, that are now like, you know, South Carolina, Georgia, and then Florida. But I, yeah, without the, what the Spanish are able to do, I wonder if the, the English are able to project outward. And as Matt was saying, right, then they go inward and, and it creates all sorts of be really interesting forms of class conflict to see how they play out. I mean, even uh- with, with the degree of colonial enterprise that they did have, which as we now know, you know, ended up covering the entire continent, that still wasn't enough to prevent a civil war that got the king's head cut off. I mean, that's how much like uh, class and social conflict was uh, germinating in, in, in England at that time. Uh, so we're imagining a world where like, uh, I think you might still see some attempts at uh, religious colonization uh, of North America, but much less uh, 
much more at the sufferance of the local uh, population as opposed to being sort of imposed upon them. Uh, and so that means it would have to be smaller. Uh, that means those m- many more of those uh, frantic Puritans would have to stay home. And I honestly think if that happens, maybe you don't get a restoration after the death of Cromwell. Maybe you get the, like the furtherance and continuation to completion of like a bourgeois revolution. In because of the non-existence of that pressure release, because as it stands, like during during Cromwell's uh, uh, interregnum, that's when they're building colonial North America, and that, like, that becomes a project of the people who you know might have supported him uh, and supported the continuation of a commonwealth, or the or more importantly, the furtherance of the concept of a commonwealth is in attacking the remnants of feudal landed power. Uh, the, but what they didn't have the uh, capacity to challenge that because their uh, energy had partly been exsanguinated by by the colonial project. Yeah, absent war, famine, and disease, there's the, the English would have failed in North America just as Spanish in our hypothetical yeah. history. Like they would have failed similarly, like the Spanish in the Caribbean. Right? They're they're not allowed to set up shop. No way. Um, or or the other thing to think about and i just because i watched this recently or our predator overlords just come in and just end everything right like that's the other that's the other cool uh if you watch the 2000 movie predator versus alien that 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 has another uh apparently the mexico were worshiping the predators so oh yeah i that, remember that that, that's that, that adds like another another layer to to this, this story yeah the predator they created civilization so that we, they could we could incubate aliens for them to hunt yeah to hunt we don't know why they hunt but they hunt They love it. They can't stop doing it. (laughs) So let's say now what happens is there's a socialist revolution or a proto-socialist revolution in, in what is now contemporary Mexico. Does that become an empire, Alex, or does that stay relatively uh, stable in and around uh, what is now Mexico City. Does that expand? Do, do, do they wound up wind up incorporating all of the various tribes and uh, polities around the region? So, like during the rise, so the Mexica were like late newcomers to what that area that is now known the Valley of Mexico, right? So this valley that's thousands of feet up in the air, and there's there used to be massive lakes, right? They were mostly independent city states organized along these different shores, right? And, and what becomes Tenochtitlan, Mexico Tenochtitlan, is just one of these city states. So I wonder. So if there is some sort of revolution from below that overthrows the Mexica Empire from within, then I would think there's just some sort of reversion back to these independent, autonomous city states. And, and I wonder if if they it goes back to this like Game of Thrones type competition to see which city state will emerge as the most powerful one. I mean, obviously, the the thing that would the dynamic that would potentially change all of this is in the course of, of uprising, this Masewal or this lower class uh, movement would have some sort of consciousness that would not necessarily be interested in reverting back to a system that is still highly dependent on their tribute and their agricultural labor. Um, and in some cases, their actual blood and hearts, right? Because that's one of the reasons why the Mexica were not particularly well liked by some of their neighbors, because uh, they required warrior hearts and blood as sacrifice to prevent uh, their, their, the, the world from, from ending to appease the uh, Huitzilopochtli, their, their, one of their main deities. So I think what you get, ideally, what would be really cool to see these city-states revert back and, and to turn into something that does have a, a presence in Mexican history, and that's the communes. 
Um, and they would be caught, these city states would be reorganized as communes based on Masewal power and with a more egalitarian redistribution of, 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 of surplus and, and, and labor in contrast to the hierarchical relationship that existed during the city state era and then definitely during the Mexica era. So let's say by 1800, there's a, a series of co- a, a loose empire of communes in what is now Mexico. What do you think happens in British North America or what did not become British North America? Is that just, do you get like the Iroquois Confederacy expand? What do you think happens there? Because I want to set the scene because then we'll play it out what happens. Yeah, I mean, so I know it was a, it was a controversial book, but like the book Comanche Empire, like the Comanche I don't like the framing of it as an empire, but this powerful entity does not arise without horses to a certain extent, right? And to right. some other, and to like gun technology. So it, without that, then I wonder whether you have different confederations set up um, and you don't necessarily have an entity this big, right? Because if you look at the outline of, of the region that, that the Comanches controlled well into the 1850s and 60s, um, you know, I don't know. I mean, there's also... You had cultural exchanges that we that 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 cross you know hundreds and thousands of miles that we still know little about and, and more work is being done. There was trade that linked groups in Florida to groups in Michigan, indigenous groups in Michigan prior to a, a European arrival. So I would think that those type of trade or commercial relationships would 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 uh, continue to exist. And you have different confederations, different city states, different uh, polities existing on 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 what later becomes British North America, absent the 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 arrival of British colonialism. Okay, so we have an empire of communes in Central America. Maybe it maybe it even extends south, and we have more dispersed power bases in what is now North America. Matt, where are the British in eighteen hundred? Where are the French? Do you even get an Enlightenment without colonialism? Right, the colonialism was so crucial to the Enlightenment. No, well, that's the whole thing. Is that all the stuff that we are trying as you know as uh, people who who imagine they are inheriting a socialist tradition, which is embedded within the the, the capitalist revolution in Europe. The things that we uh, seek to extend are all creations of this specific relationship to production. Uh, and if if we don't get that, if we get something that is egalitarian that avoids uh, internal domination and also external uh, war and repression and th- that you know, seeks to distribute from each to each, you are just not going to have the uh, economic uh, development that you otherwise would with a system that allows for mass dispoilation and accumulation of capital, which is a necessary precondition for capitalism's emergence. So the, uh, the, the, to, to my mind, the interesting question is uh, if we assume this, this new sort of uh, uh, interruption of class conflict and this, but a, a remaining, uh, you know, conflict with nature as, you know, the, these techno, these societies try to get some equilibrium with their environment. Uh, at the same time, this would be happening. We still have two huge social formations. Uh, that are hierarchical and that are accumulating capital and and learning how to use it. And that is the Chinese and uh, the Ottomans. And I think the question is with less resistance to be able to be put up to them as they sort of find their extents, does this mean that, uh, that you get an inevitable uh, uh, Arab or Chinese conquest of uh, Europe and North America? So let's assume that that does happen that 
the, the Ottoman Empire makes it further into Europe than it would have otherwise, let's say at least into Germany. I, yeah. I find it difficult to imagine them conquering the UK. That seems- they couldn't take Europe, uh, the whole thing, but I think they could take it maybe east of the, uh, of the Alps. Right, exactly. Something like that. So you get half Ottoman. So Eastern Europe becomes uh, Islamic. Yeah. Uh, the church, let's say, you know, remains in Rome or moves to Avignon again. And so you get a Western European rump base that is basically in a semi-feudal state. Uh, and then you get China. Where would China go? Would China go to Alaska? Would it go to the Western United States? What happens there? Well, the thing about China is, is that for the longest time, they had no need to go anywhere because they had everything. They, 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 they didn't really uh, have any motivation to, to conquer. Uh, they, there's the famous pleasure fleets of the, of the Zhang Empire, where, which went around and, and, uh, and were essentially a propaganda effort by the Chinese Empire, but which never actually attempted to establish any geographic connections anywhere or hold anything because that sort of contact is destabilizing and, and the empire had a, a, a vested uh, unifying interest in preventing uh, a destabilizing innovation. Uh, and so I think that's why they would probably be the least likely to, or the last power to, you know, in this context, try to seek the vacuum. Uh, but, you know, if you assume things keep, uh, uh, we're talking about class societies under constant pressure they're going to continue to create contradictions that are going to continue to undermine them and they're going to seek stability somewhere. And so I think they would eventually, yeah, probably seek crawl down the West coast of the United States. But uh, again, I think at the, the very end of the process, they would be the ones coming up holding the rear. Okay. So I just want to set the stage. It's 1800. We talked about the Western hemisphere. We talked about half of Europe becoming Islamized. And we talked about China, Matt, it seems like you're saying they would probably not have done the same colonial expansion, right? Yeah. So when do these encounters happen? Because people know about peoples in the Western hemisphere at this point, right? Not only were there these early things that gave the native uh, peoples antibodies, but there were these a failed British attempt to actually establish a beachhead and there was a failed Spanish attempt to actually establish a beachhead. So what happens? Do Alex, like you said, the book you were talking about, is there a reverse colonialism where uh, the, the, the 200-year-later Mexica society develops the navigational technologies, particularly because it's a lake-based, water-based society, so there's pressures inherently there. Do they go to the rump Western Catholic Europe? What, what happens? Let's, let's play it out. I, w- I would say that before you get any kind of conflict, because you can't have like a war unless you know who you're fighting, you'd have to have uh, a process of sounding out. So I think what you would have is the creation of diplomatic embassies and a uh, sort of a recognition of sovereignty uh, and then trade relationships based on that. The same way that uh, Europe encountered China and Japan, where they were required to because they faced an entrenched social order that they could not overthrow. So they dealt with them uh, uh, in a position, uh, an assumed position of equals in a diplomatic field uh, and then negotiated for things like trade routes, trade rights. And I think that there would be the establishment first of trade connections between uh, the Americas and Europe, which would have their own destabilizing effects that we can't even begin to predict. But, you know, once again, if we don't assume some sort of uh, 
technological fix to the crises that are endemic to both systems, somebody is getting invaded eventually. <laughs> well, so that's my question, right? Like, because you don't get the enlightenment or you don't get the enlightenment in the same way, I don't think you get that in, uh, obsession with individualism that comes to define North Atlantic liberalism and North Atlantic capitalism. So you also have almost a different mind space, generally speaking. And and so, Alex, I, could you talk maybe a little bit about like, we, we talk in academia about like indigenous ways of knowing and things along those lines, but like, how would that have played out if there's no colonial encounter? Do you, do you get a whole different mind geography and how does that mind geography come into contact eventually with an Islamized Eastern Europe, uh, a, a China that has a totally different relationship to world power because of no Western colonialism? I'd like to talk a little bit about the ideologies as opposed to the material for a moment. Well, the the world you guys have set up this was like our last chance for multipolarity so so i hope you're you're proud of yourselves uh with the chinese empire and the ottoman empire and the americas independent that was our last chance um well, i think it's interesting because th- this is about thinking about uh encounters that as matt was saying occur on an equal playing field right like there there's a respect and there's a recognition of these in these polities sovereignties right and con- which is really rich right because the usual Spanish for a long time, the, the colonizer historiography of what happened in, in Mexico, for instance, the Spanish is that the Spanish won because they had, they had, they were inherently culturally superior because they had better communication skills because they were quicker at adapting to interpreting changing reality, shit like that. Like something about their language and their culture allowed them to, ad- and Cortez was supposed to be the master, the master of signs and reading signs. Um, but if you don't have that and, and you have these, these the diplomatic missions that, that Matt was talking about, it'd be really interesting to see what kind of unexpected syncretic mixtures of, of worldviews, of politics, of economics, of even religion occur. Um, and that's really hard to fathom, right? I think, you know, for, for a Masewal revolution to take down the, the Mexica, that would entail them going against their entire cosmology, right? Because the, the superiority and the power and the legitimacy of the Mexica nobility was physically manifested in this massive city, Mexico Tenochtitlan, that had over 200,000 people. So for a revolution to even happen, ha- they have to end the world as they know it, and they have to go against their gods. And what happens, and if they're able to accomplish that, like, I, it's hard for me to fathom like what replaces that, right? Because th- this religion has been, and this cosmology has been created in relation to a very particular geography that's really, uh, I don't know if you've been to Mexico City, right? It's crazy rains, crazy seasons, there's massive earthquakes and flooding. Um, so yeah. it would be really interesting to see like what, what, what would have come out of these encounters, right? Because there's, there's, they're going to borrow and take from one another, particularly if they're on an equal playing field, I think. Right. So that makes me think if you have a situation where you've got mounting class conflict in an unequal and, un, and destabilizing uh, Mexican empire in a context of cultural contact with Europe, uh, maybe uh, Christianity becomes like the cultural language of resistance and defiance of this world that like had been imposed on them and that they were now becoming alienated from. It's another liberation theology. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, too. In, the, in that novel, the, when the Incas arrive and they take over Spain, they offer their religion as a much more egalitarian and forward thinking religion, and they define themselves against the backward looking dark mystical Catholicism that rules Spain. Right. And I think that would happen in Europe too. That's that same diffusion would happen in that direction. Also like uh, Dawn of everything uh, makes a pretty convincing case that one of the big contributors to the enlightenment as a concept 
what and and the generation of notions of like uh individual liberty as as like constitutive of you know social virtue came from encounters with the North American natives uh and their social order and and that contact would also happen in in any context that we're talking about here and would have probably a similar role in being a catalyst for like new social thought to emerge to challenge the what we're always we're stipulating here are unstable and, and declining uh, uh, political economies. So let's talk for a second about industrialization, because you could have technological development in non-capital societies. We had it for the entirety of human existence. Do you think you get some sort of technological revolution anyway? Maybe it doesn't happen with the cotton gin, um, but maybe it happens in, you know, 1900. What is the course of technology in this world? Because that is also crucial to the, I mean, this is why Marx thought capitalism was necessary for socialism. You needed to have these technologies. So assuming, and I think it's fair to assume that over time, both sides, all sides of the equation would develop technologies that allow for more calories, that allow for more surplus, that allow for more brain power to be spent on development of, of abstract thought. What happens in this world in terms of industrialization? I think you do not get industrial capitalism as we understand it. We, you get though, and we saw, we've seen like China is like the cliche example here. You see the emergence of technologies in basically any social context where there's surplus to be accumulated and, and experimented with basically. But it cannot be organized around a central goal anywhere outside of uh, the competitive state framework because of its destabilizing role. But that destabilizing role is a, is in the context of class societies. If we're imagining that we are able to, you know, achieve an agrarian communism uh, that is now encountering because there's still, you know, there's still these state projects that are uh, in conflict and, and, and in, uh, cooperation with one another. So there's still the business of state. There's still bureaucracy. There is still governance of some kind or else they wouldn't be able, these places wouldn't be able to establish and maintain territorial integrity. And which are developing before colonialism. I mean, you have an increasing sophistication of these exactly. technologies. And so these state structures, more egalitarian, but still structures that like marshal efforts and direct them are going to now be encountering the same sort of, uh, Eureka, aha, black swan technological innovations that happened uh, under capitalism. Not as fast and not as like rapidly, more, more sort of stochastically. But once they emerge, energy can be directed towards them. So I think you still do get the kindling of a technological society, but it's one that is at every point restrained by a dominant social, a social concept uh, and a social identity that uh, prevents uh, technology from basically ripping off its tethers and becoming ungovernable, which is what basically immediately happens under capitalism. So it, it, we, we get, get the it, sorcerer's apprentice effect. Right. An unalienated form of technological development where, where yeah. we control the technology or the, and the technology doesn't control us. But yeah. do, you, do you guys think that, that there would be wars between these encounters or are we positing that without this sort of brutality of colonialism and capitalism and enlightenment thinking and liberalism that there are, that's why I was trying to emphasize the mind space, because I think that's actually crucial to appreciating how the Ottoman 
post-Mexicas society would interact when they come in, would come into contact in a more sustained way in 1830, for example, as opposed to 1519. Yeah, I think there would still be conflict, right? But I think one of the really interesting things that comes out of thinking about how the Mexica fought against the Spanish is the way they fight, right? And the, and the way that, the, that, that that war is thought of and, and conceptualized uh, is, is really important, right? So when the Mexica fought the Spaniards, they because of Mexica cosmology and religion, they fought not to kill, right? But they fought to capture, right? Because for them, uh, the most prized captives to sacrifice were other warriors. So when the Spanish, 400 Spanish are attacking their city and like 200,000 indigenous allies, uh, these Mexica warriors are trying to capture the Spanish. I said, they don't, they don't, they don't fight. They don't have conflict to kill, at least on the battlefield. They're, they're having conflict to capture. There's, there's accounts of Mexica, like marching off, armies marching off to a, to a city, a rival city state. And if that city state didn't have enough weapons, the Mexica would give them weapons because for them, if it were, if there wasn't a fair fight, there's no honor in it. And, and it kind of defeats the purpose of them capturing these prized captives for sacrifice. Whereas the Spanish, as the Spanish, you know, in this, you know, centuries of Reconquista warfare, they didn't mind, you know, pointing a cannon at a bunch of civilians and blowing them to smithereens, right? They didn't give a shit about that. So it would be really interesting to think about, like, if their methods of war changed or they remain the same um, or, or be, minus the, 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 the European conception of warfare that gets brought over via colonialism. Right. So it, this idea in 1830s, you have a different like these Mexica stateless communes fighting against the Ottomans. It, it, it'd be interesting to think about like their conceptions of war and conflict, how they differ. And then now how that will shape the outcome of, of this type of conflict. But there's still going to be conflict. The question is like, how, what's at stake? What are they fighting over? Right, yeah. Why are they fighting over, uh, over this stuff? And then how do they legitimize that type of conflict and war to their own population? Yeah. I, I, I would imagine that it would be a similar situation to conflict in Europe in that you're fighting over territory and, 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 and economic emollients one way or the other. And that, that war is, is politics by another means. It's another way to try to gain advantage in that sort of constant uh, uh, struggle for resources. But I think it would stay at that level. It would not reach the existential uh, level that the colonial endeavor did. And we're essentially saying, to underline it, that there's an inherent eradicatory or eradication-centered uh, element of Western warfare. And that's the the ideology that winds up dominating military history after the 16th century because it's an arms race, you know, it's an ideological arms race. If, if, the, if the Mexica don't respond with similar extermination practices, then there's no way that they're going to win. So the colonial encounter going away, at least in the, in the way that it happened here, would transform, uh, you know, the various ways of war. So it seems like that would, sorry, Alex, please. No, no, so to interrupt, and that mentality of war will then make its way into other things like labor. Right. So that that brings in this allows us to bring in an area that we haven't talked about much, but like what Africa is doing at this moment and like how Africa and these different powerful African kingdoms develop absent the, the slave trade. Because you, a lot of Caribbean scholars, particularly those like Vincent Brown, who writes about these uh, Jamaica. Right. He thinks he taught he conceptualizes slavery as like an everyday form of warfare that is very European and that views labor in that same type of eradicatory form. Right. Because they know that it's cheaper for them to work a slave to death in two years and then just resupply uh, the, the plantation or that economy with more slaves coming from, from, from all co from all, most parts of Africa. Right. So without that, then Africa, I think would have a really, and these different African kingdoms have a really important role to play in this, in this hypothetical as well. 
So it does seem like the colonial encounter as it proceeded was not the greatest thing in the world. <laughs> Without it, we would, we, would, we would be living in, in social harmony today. We'd already be on the moon. We'd already be expanding throughout the universe. Um, we could go on with this one for a while, but uh, any final thoughts on the colonial encounter happening differently? Yeah, just that it does really feel like the, the lack of a, of a connection between discovery and recognition, uh, which was impossible because of the, the way it occurred, uh, it really did put mankind in a in a pretty deep hole that it's very hard to imagine them climbing out of. <laughs> Wasn't great. Yeah. Oh, there's no West. I mean, that's yeah. the thing that I think I, I think about this idea of what constitutes the West on a variety of different levels. Right. There is no West. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is like the, this is the foundational moment. And without that, then it's we come up with all sorts of uh, hypotheticals like we have today. And it, it probably would look like. Well, I don't know, but I still think it would look more, much more multipolar than, than what happened in, in, in yeah. practice. Well, I mean, we would actually have to solve our problems socially. We would have to look within. We could, we could, there's not a frontier to fan, to hypnotize ourselves with. And there's no U S so yeah. there, there you go. Yeah. That's the real thing is there's no one place to just catch all of the drippings from the pan and turn it into a demi glaze. So me and Matt would be living somewhere in Germany as neighbors. Alex, where would you be in this world? Who the hell knows, man? I don't know. <laughs> either either one of these be, yeah. Yeah, we would all be on Mars. <laughs> we would all be on Mars living on space Mex- Mexica communes. Spartan yep. Mars, yeah. Spartan Mexica Mars, yeah. Yep. <laughs> all right, guys. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all next week. Bye. Bye-bye.